Welcome to another conversation on orthodoxy. I think that when you go into an orthodox church and you open your eyes to see the robes, to hear the, the chanting, the psalms, the incense, the prayers, the presence of God there in the midst of his people, it's like you're reading the book of Revelation and you're seeing how worship happens in heaven. That was the voice of Deacon Joseph Gleason at Christ the King Orthodox Church in Omaha, Illinois, describing his first visit to an Orthodox church, observing the Orthodox liturgy for the first time, the awe he felt, the feelings. I recently uh, became acquainted with Deacon Joseph and his story, which is quite an amazing one because he's a convert, but he didn't just convert to Orthodoxy alone brought his family, his cousin, and in fact, his uh, entire church with him. Quite the amazing story. I asked Joseph to sit down and talk about his, uh, his early life, how he got to the point where he was starting to question things, how this journey went. Unfortunately, the, um, the audio was a little bit bad at the first. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going to retell this story for him for at least the first part until I can have uh, a little bit better audio. So Joseph Gleason was the son of a piano player. He was a part of a very famous gospel group called the Blackwood Brothers. Traveled around with them for a while, and so so did Joseph. Their entire family was uh, it was nomadic Christianity. It was every week in a different church. And this sort of Christian lifestyle continued for their entire family until Joseph was about nine or ten when his parents settled down in Texas and they began to attend uh, church a little more frequently, but they still changed churches every couple of years until somewhere in his 20s, early 20s, Joseph decided to stop that and put down some of his own roots in a single church. A, a church there that uh, is basically a Baptist church. Um, and he became um, a staunch Calvinist. Uh, very, very um, in, enthralled by the thinking and the, the, the system of Calvinism. Seemed to answer a lot of his questions. He went to Westminster Seminary um, and began to to think about you know full time ministry. And then he, I guess, he read too much. He says he he. He read too much Bible, he read too much history, and he started to get some strange theological ideas, things that uh, weren't particularly Baptist or Calvinist, but that from his, his increased learning of history and seeing how the early church practiced his Christianity, he started to see that um, there may be some things he needed to reconsider. He came to the conclusion that in fact, uh, infant baptism was the standard practice of the early church. Came to understand the theological validity of it, the reasons why it was done. And uh, he went and got his kids baptized by a local Presbyterian minister. So uh, he got lots of odd looks from that, for sure. 
Um, but it didn't it didn't stop there. It, it was a lot of other things. The more he read in history, the more he decided things don't quite look like what we're doing here. He's still firmly convinced about Calvinism, absolutely, but wanted something that was more liturgical, more sacramental. And so he eventually um, became Anglican. He was Anglican for a, a certain amount of time, uh, went to Anglican seminary, and um, and then uh, he and his family made a move to Illinois. There were uh, some family reasons that uh, he wanted to be in Illinois, and so he uh, took his family, uh, and, and uh, one of his cousins moved uh, with them as well, and they went to Omaha, Illinois, a very small town in Illinois, to be with some family. They were there. When they got there, um, they decided that uh, this place didn't have an Anglican church. The nearest Anglican church was was quite a distance away. They decided, um, in conjunction with uh, an Anglican bishop, that they would look at starting an Anglican church in Omaha, Illinois. And so they purchased an old uh, Presbyterian church building that wasn't in use. And they began to... Uh, after after some amount of time, they began to have services there to whatever extent they were capable. They they were still themselves learning what it meant to be Anglican and how these you know how, how you even do services. And so uh, you know there was there was definitely a period of time where they were learning, but they had they had a, you know, a small core group of people there, and and they worked to get their Anglicanism solid uh, before they started launching out to. Uh, you know, convert all Omaha to the Anglican faith. Things seemed to be going pretty good. Uh, Joseph was ordained as a deacon, uh, an Anglican deacon, uh, on his way to priesthood, and then um, and then the wheels fell off. He might say another big transition came for him when he had uh, a very good friend of his who was um, also a, a very staunch Calvinist who had become Anglican as well. Um, so very similar path. And he contacted Joseph and said, Joseph, I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch to, I'm going to switch to the ACA. The ACA is a, uh, is a group of Anglican churches that had petitioned the Pope to become Catholic. You know, the Roman church has, has made a, a mechanism whereby Anglican churches can come over into Catholicism um, in mass, um, the, the priests, um, come over as is, they still stay married, they're priests and, and just the whole, the whole church comes as is. And, um, and this friend, um, who was an Anglican priest said, um, I'm going, I'm going to become Catholic. And, and, and this, uh, this appalled Joseph. He, he couldn't understand why this, this person who he respected, um, why he would, possibly think that this was a good idea uh, or right. And so he began to raise all the objections, the standard objections. What about this? What about that? And and for the first time, Joseph said he uh, had somebody who um, who could actually answer the objections. Prior to this, you know, you, you, you talk about these things maybe with your friends, but it's usually people who believe like you. You rarely actually talk about you know, certain core foundational Christian beliefs with people who disagree with you and who are very knowledgeable and, um, and can answer objections and, and can really make you think. And this is what happened. He began to think, um, 
and uh, and this is this is where we can let Joseph take over the story. Himself was converting. He was previously a Reformed Calvinistic Presbyterian guy. He became a Reformed Calvinistic Anglican, just like me. And at the time, I was the editor of the North American Anglican. Uh, it's a theological jur- journal which uh, publishes various articles by priests, deacons, and laymen, by the continuing Anglicans who have separated from the Episcopal Church. And anyway, he was one of the one of the authors. So I was in frequent contact with him as he was writing for my journal. And he also assisted with some of the editing for the journal. And then, lo and behold, I find out that he is swimming the Tiber. He's going to Rome. And, you know, to fast forward, just as an aside, earlier this year, he was ordained as a, as a Roman Catholic priest. Um, but at the time, this was a great shock because, you know, he and I both uh, were coming out of out of Calvinism, we had close ties to Presbyterianism. Uh, even as Anglicans, we still considered ourselves Protestants. And then here he was wanting to get under the Pope. And I was floored by this, and I was floored by the idea of prayers to Mary. That was one of the big, big problems that I had. I was uh, aghast at the idea of giving up Sola Scriptura. Uh, I mean, to be honest, at the time, my head was just spinning. <laughs> you know, here's this, uh, you know, in retrospect, you try to make everything logical and methodical, and this happened and this happened, but the truth of it is, at the time, your head's spinning, um, you're emailing back and forth, you're asking other friends for their help, you're chatting with your family, you're chatting with your wife, you're praying, you're reading and getting sleepy and then getting away from it because you've got to prepare a sermon for the next Sunday and then you've got a diaper to go change and uh, just kind of a whirlwind really and you know frustrating because up until that point you know the, the issue had come up from time to time but usually it was straw men I was dealing with other Protestants who already believed in Sola Scriptura and were just looking for justification of it or I was dealing with Catholics who did not believe in Sola Scriptura, but they didn't really have any good reasons why not. <laughs> and they, they weren't very good apologists for their position. Uh, but here I hit, hit up against somebody who was a friend of mine, who I respected, whom I trusted, and he was also very intelligent, very well-read, and... He asked me some questions that I simply could not answer. I just remember, you know, being confronted with a number of arguments that I simply, you know, I simply couldn't answer. Right about the same time, I had been studying the the canon of Scripture, and even as a, an Anglican, I started becoming very suspicious about the sixty-six book canon because I had done enough historical studies and textual studies to be very tempted to believe that the Book of Wisdom was inspired scripture and that the Book of Tobit was inspired scripture and these other books that you find in the in the Catholic and the Orthodox Bibles. Uh, and so 
you know, one of the, the popular arguments against Sola Scriptura is, okay, well, the doctrine of the canon of Scripture, where is that in the Bible? Where does the Bible say there are 66 books in the Bible? You know, where does where do the Scriptures tell you that the book of Baruch is not inspired, but that the book of Esther is inspired? Um, you know, there's nine books of the Old Testament, at least nine books, there may be more, that are never quoted anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, and a lot of those are, well, actually, those nine, if I remember right, those are all in the Protestant Bible. So if you add the Deuterocanon, that would be, you know, 15 or 20. But just in the Protestant Bible, you have like Obadiah, you have the Song of Solomon, you have Ecclesiastes, you have multiple Old Testament books that are never once quoted in the New Testament. So you can't, you can't even use that as your guide. And then, of course, the New Testament itself. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that Second Peter is or is not Scripture or that Revelation is or is not Scripture. So I think one of the big ones for me is that I finally realized that even Protestants do not believe in Sola Scriptura. Now, they say they do. And yet, when you ask them, okay, how do you know for sure that these are the 66 books in Scripture? How, how, how do you know for sure what is Scripture and what is not? Um, they never can give you a proof from Scripture. They always have to fall back onto their Protestant tradition. And so at the end of the day, I realized I was not pitting tradition against Scripture. I was pitting Protestant tradition against a much more ancient Orthodox tradition. And once I realized it in those terms, you know, it made it easy to know which side to choose. Now at this point, Joseph has left the safe comfort of Protestantism and has entered a, a dark night of the soul, many converts will recognize this sort of phase where everything is slightly topsy-turvy. You're not quite sure where things will land. And for some, there's a temptation to stop, to go back, close your eyes. It's just too uncomfortable, and that's understandable. For others, they push forward. Some people want to take their time, and, and that's not an unreasonable thing to stop, take stock, let things work out. And in fact, that's what some of Joseph's friends counseled him to do. They said, take your time, think about it, don't make any rash moves. But Joseph kept moving, and I asked him, what was it that motivated you to keep pressing forward and not, not let things settle down? The, in fact, the primary motivator was my children. Um, whatever happened to the church, whether I was ever a, a, a pastor again or not, I wanted my children, and I still do want my children, to go to heaven. To know Christ, to follow Him, and to be in the same church that He Himself founded. And, you know, I had friends of mine saying, well... You can think about what you're thinking about and study what you're studying, but just slow down, man. 
You know, I had a, a friend of mine, a missionary down in Mexico, and he said, look, it, it's nothing to spend five years or ten years just slowly and carefully thinking these things through. And if I had been a single man or if I was an older man with grown children, I might have agreed with him. But when I looked at the ages of my children, I have seven kids, and now they range in age from two to nine. But when I was thinking about my children, I realized I don't have ten years to figure this out. <laughs> uh, if I had waited ten years to figure things out, my, most of my kids would already have been old enough that my influence on them would have been limited. So I felt constrained by love for my children to do whatever it took to pray, to read, to spend hours a day just plowing through this material just to seek the truth. Because whatever the truth was, whether it was orthodoxy, Catholicism, uh, Protestantism, anything, whatever the truth is, whatever it means to know Christ, I wanted my children to grow up with that. And that was the only thing I really cared about at that time. Let the chips fall where they may. So with some determination, Joseph pressed on. He knew that Sola Scriptura was untenable, so he couldn't be a Protestant. That was no longer an option for him. He was left really with two choices, Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. And I know from having seen some of Joseph's early correspondence that he spent quite a time looking at Roman Catholicism and had pushed quite far down the path to mentally adjusting to the idea of becoming Roman Catholic. There was a lot there to admire, a rich history, apostolic succession, Episcopal governance of the church, the saints, infant baptism. But there were a few things that he couldn't quite satisfy himself on. Infant communion was something he had come to believe was definitely the historic practice of the church, the Roman Catholic Church no longer did that. But much more importantly, the central issue that divides the Roman Catholic Church from the Eastern Orthodox Church, that of the role of the papacy, the Bishop of Rome. Where does Rome fit in all this? And really that is the quintessential issue when deciding between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. If you can determine whether the Roman Catholic idea of the role of the Bishop of Rome in the life of the Church, whether that is true, then so many of the other questions fall right into place. If it's not true, the same thing happens, but in a very different direction. Yeah, I read all these different uh, Roman Catholic apologists, and I read these different Orthodox apologists. Uh, but for me, the tipping point finally came when I read this book by Michael Huelton, and the title of the book is Popes and Patriarchs. 
And that was just immensely helpful because one place that Orthodoxy and Catholicism agree is on the authority of the seven ecumenical councils. And one of the things I loved about this book, Popes and Patriarchs, is that it very closely scrutinized the way that the Pope of Rome was looked at through the eyes of the ecumenical councils. And he certainly is looked at as somebody with great authority. I would even say that he is looked at as first among equals. You know, at the, I believe it was the Council of Chalcedon, after going over Pope Leo's tome, that they literally marched around and, and cried out that St. Peter has spoken through Pope Leo. So he certainly was honored, he certainly was revered, he was certainly venerated, and yet he certainly was not looked at as a bishop of all bishops. He was not looked at as someone with universal jurisdiction. Just for example, when you consider that he was not even invited to the Second Ecumenical Council, uh, when you consider that at the Council of Chalcedon, before they marched around praising Pope Leo, they actually spent several days scrutinizing what he had written to see whether it had any heresy in it. You know, not something you'd really expect today. I mean, can you imagine if they had uh, the Vatican III Council and Pope Benedict was there and he brought his writings and if everybody spent weeks just pouring over his writings to see whether it was really Catholic or not, and that's kind of it's kind of hard to imagine. And then you know, even look at the Fifth Council, uh, Second Council of Constantinople. Uh, there was a period there where Pope Vigilius was actually, you know, kind of obstinate uh, in regard to certain doctrines, and the bishops at the Fifth Ecumenical Council actually uh, excommunicated the Pope. <laughs> and based on modern Roman Catholic theology, I don't think that's really possible. So it was just really helpful looking at this book and going back through the councils and, and the history of the papacy and understanding that, yes, the Church of the First Millennium did hold the, the Bishop of Rome in very high regard, but he did not have the same level of authority as modern Roman Catholics assume. So, long story short, I read this book. It was, you know, it was the final tipping point, uh, helping me to decide for orthodoxy instead of Roman Catholicism. And so, you know, here, here's this grand journey. You know, I, I had gone through all these Protestant denominations. I had spent time at a Bible church. I had attended Westminster Seminary. I had spent some time with the Anglican Seminary. Um, I had become ordained as an Anglican. Uh, finally realized that I need to take that final step and join the ancient church. And after months of study and thousands of pages of reading and prayers, 
finally became convinced that the ancient church is not Rome, but the ancient church is the Orthodox Church. And at this point in my journey, it finally became apparent that I probably should visit an Orthodox Church. <laughs> so, you know, kind of an unusual journey, I think. Um, not exactly how I would recommend for anybody else. You know, now that I've had an opportunity to, you know, really experience the glories of the liturgy, but I had no clue about the glories of the liturgy at the time. I just knew that I was searching for the ancient church and I found it in books. I read and read and well, and the thing was, you know, when I grew up, there weren't any Orthodox churches around. And even when I finally found the Orthodox church in books, the nearest Orthodox Church at the time was an hour and 15 minutes one way to this little town of 1,100 people. So it really wasn't even on my radar for years. And then when it finally was on my radar, it was a, you know, it was a pretty decent drive. And it wasn't that easy just to go visit churches at the time because here I was by this time pastoring a church. So I was preparing sermons to preach every Sunday. So we, we had to reach a pretty good level of confidence about it before I felt good about telling my whole congregation, okay, this next Sunday I'm not going to preach. We're going to all go drive an hour and visit the Orthodox Church. At this point in the story, we need to back up because there's someone that we haven't talked about. Any conversion process is difficult, even if you're single, but Joseph wasn't single. As you've heard him mention, he is married and has, uh, has uh, quite a few children. And his uh, wife was unfortunately along for the ride. When you are married to someone who is going through this sort of process where their world is getting turned upside down. That means your world is getting turned upside down too. So I asked Joseph how his wife dealt with the transition. Well, this was a pretty tumultuous several months that I was, you know, transitioning from being a solid, hardcore, Calvinistic, Anglican, Protestant pastor to being thoroughly confused, not knowing which way was up. Finally deciding that Catholicism or Orthodoxy had to be true and that at the, that point in time I was neither one and then finally becoming Orthodox. During this whole time, you know, she's very nervous because we had spent a good deal of our lives believing that if you rejected Sola Scriptura, if you rejected... Uh, you know, justification by faith alone, and so, you know, just some of these these Protestant catchphrases that you are denying the faith and you're anathema. And there were many congregations that we had been part of earlier in our lives where 
you figured that all Catholics were hiding horns, you know. <laughs> so, and, and Orthodox, we didn't know what they were hiding because we didn't know they, they existed. But, um, so she was very nervous about it, and frankly, so was I. I even remember one point I asked her to get on the phone and call our old pastor from Texas, the Calvinistic Baptist guy, um, just to get his advice, because I told her, I said, I really, really think I'm doing the right thing, and I really hope I'm doing the right thing, but if I'm doing the wrong thing, I don't want to take you to hell. <laughs> so I, I literally asked her to get on the phone and just to get a second opinion, talk to our old pastor and discuss things with him, you know, get any input that she could. And also, I made it very clear that I did not want her to just convert to Catholicism or Orthodoxy, whichever way that I went. I did not want her to convert just because I was. I wanted her to, in her own time, read some of the books that I was reading, work through some of the questions that I was working through, um, ask her own questions, do her own research because I knew that this was a really, really big deal. This was not just, okay, are we going to be Nazarene or Wesleyan? This was not even, are we going to be Baptist or Presbyterian or Anglican? This was you know, literally crossing over from one team to another. You know, we, were, we had been Protestants our entire lives, and now we were saying, yeah, the scriptures are inspired by God, but so is Holy Church tradition. Yes, we believe that we should pray to God, but we also need to be uh, asking the saints to pray for us. So this was a big deal. I recognized that. And even though I made everybody very uncomfortable with the speed at which I was plowing through books and asking questions and challenging, um, I still tried to give everybody enough space to do things at their own pace. So. Um, pretty much, I, I guess to use the cliche, I, I dragged everybody kicking and screaming. Um, I went forward, I pulled them behind my wake, but simultaneously I told them now, don't come just because I'm coming. So, you know, she would read these books, she would ask questions, she would think about it, and she came on board fairly quickly. Um, I'd say she wasn't too far behind me. It took a little bit longer for some of the people in our church, like my uh, cousin Jeremy and his wife, for example. And I love the story that he tells. Um, and this, this actually even was slightly before this journey into, into orthodoxy. We had been looking at some different doctrines. We had been looking at the canon of Scripture. Some things that, in retrospect, I can see God used to lead us towards orthodoxy, but at the time, I didn't realize that. And anyway, I found out after the fact that Jeremy and his wife, Krista, had been sitting out, having a discussion, and we we're just talking about how things were going with the church and the fact that they had moved across the country to, to help get the church plant going and to assist with things and that 
now there were these different doctrines that we were looking at and different books of the Bible they were looking at and just how much had changed since they had been Presbyterian and Nazarene before that. And then his wife, Krista, she said, well, at least we're never going to be praying to Mary. And, and Jeremy said, well, never say never. And she got big saucer eyes and she looked at him and she said, what do you mean by that? And he said, I'm not saying I want to pray to Mary. I don't. He said, but a lot of the things that we're doing now, like baptizing babies and pedo communion and uh, wearing robes and having candles, he said, there's a lot of things we're doing now that we never thought we'd do. So wherever God leads, let's just go where he leads. And in retrospect, that's funny because here we are Orthodox now and all of us have icons of Mary up in our houses. And then with other people in the church, I just made it very clear. When I'm preaching from the pulpit, I am going to preach what I believe is true. But just because I say I believe it's true, that doesn't require you to immediately agree with me. I encourage them to read on their own. I encourage them to ask anybody that they wanted to ask. And if they saw anywhere that they felt that I was wrong, I invited them to challenge me on it. And I did not get upset about the challenges. I did not get upset about the discussions. I welcomed those because... Honestly, I was still in a state of flux at the time, and I knew there was the chance that I was doing the wrong thing. And if that's the case, I wanted them to correct me. So I think that that helped. They knew that I was not just requiring everybody to salute and say, yes, sir, and just come on board immediately. Um, things were moving along at a quick pace, and it was uncomfortable for everybody. But I did give them enough space to ask questions, to study on their own, to, to disagree with me, to challenge different things. And even though I know a lot of times it does not work out this way, I am very thankful that in this particular case, um, everybody stayed on board. We didn't, we didn't lose anybody. Here, here's this grand journey. You know, I, I had gone through all these Protestant denominations. I had spent time at a Bible church. I had attended Westminster Seminary. I had spent some time with the Anglican Seminary. Um, I had become ordained as an Anglican. Uh, finally realized that I need to take that final step and join the ancient church. And after months of study and thousands of pages of reading and prayers, finally became convinced that the ancient church is not Rome, but the ancient church is the Orthodox Church. And at this point in my journey, it finally became apparent that I probably should visit an Orthodox Church. <laughs> fantastic. I remember our first divine liturgy, uh, it was the, the parish of the protection of the Holy Virgin Mary in Royalton, Illinois, it's OCA, and at the time the priest was Father Nick Finley, and 
So I watched this whole thing. I was enamored by it and bewildered and confused all at the same time. Didn't know exactly what all was going on, but I liked what I saw. And after it was all over, Father Nick came over to the fellowship hall and he asked me, he said, well, what did you think? And I said, that looked to me like worship in the book of Revelation. And that's still what I tell people today. It, whether it's Eastern Rite or Western Rite, uh, OCA, Antiochian, Greek, I think that when you go into an Orthodox church and you open your eyes to see the robes, to hear the, the chanting, the psalms, the incense, the prayers, the presence of God there in the midst of his people, it's like you're reading the book of Revelation and you're seeing how worship happens in heaven. It wasn't long after seeing the Orthodox liturgy that the little Anglican church in Omaha, Illinois, decided they wanted to become Orthodox, presented themselves to the Antiochian jurisdiction, and asked to be admitted. If you ever find yourself down in Omaha, give Deacon Joseph a call, drop by Christ the King Orthodox Church, and perhaps for the first time, experience the Western Rite of the Orthodox Church for yourself. Thanks again to Deacon Joseph for his time over multiple conversations and email and I appreciate what God has done in Joseph's life, through Joseph's life, the people around him. I'd also like to thank Alistair Cameron, Broke for Free, Dexter Britton, Jazar, and Oscar Schuster for the music I used in this podcast. You can find their music for free at freemusicarchive.org.